everyone, it's Vanessa, and welcome to A Tap on the Wrist. This is our last Stitch Together re-release before we premiere season five, Around the World. This week, we'll be revisiting the Moulin Rouge to hear the story of famed can-can dancer, La Goulie. This was from episode 73. We'll then head to Champagne to learn the origins of Veuve Clicquot, back from episode 65. We hope you join us for season five, which kicks off on May 31st, 2022, to hear more stories from around the globe. Enjoy. Today, I am going to tell you the story of Louise Weber. Have you heard of her? No, I have not. Okay. I had not either until this week, which is kind of strange because she's very well known, especially in France. Really? Yes, which is where her story takes place. So I do want to preemptively apologize for all of the butchering of the the French. I tried to listen to a lot of the words, but I'm going to do that terrible thing where I try and mimic, and it's going to be a butchered French accent. This is like the first episode of me for the season. Yeah. It's full of French words. Or if I try and say them... I'm going to sound so American. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, you know, I'm putting it out there. I'm sorry. Yeah. It is what it is. I, I feel you. It's it's rough. So Louise Weber was born July 12th of 1866 in Alsace, France. Um, and Alsace is located in the northeast section of France, quite close to Germany and Switzerland. Okay. Uh, Louise's family was Jewish, and when she was young, they relocated to Clichy. Sure. I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, which is a suburb of northwest, just northwest of Paris. Okay. And there's not a lot known about Louise's young life because her family was quite ordinary. They didn't have a ton of money. Her... There's nothing written about what her father did for a living or if he was in the picture, but it is always noted in every article that I read that her mother was like a laundress. Okay. Okay. Um, And that's quite important because one of Louisa's favorite pastimes as a young girl was to dress up in like the expensive and fancy clothes of her mother's customers while she was laundering them and like dance around their home. Yeah. Uh, Louise loved pretending to be, like, a glamorous star on the great stage, which goes on to explain a lot about how Louise Weber grows up to become the queen of Montmartre. What is that? It's a neighborhood in France. Yeah. Um, It's actually, like, where Moulin Rouge is located. Oh, okay. Which is going to play a part in our story today. Okay. But she becomes, like, the queen of the cabaret, the queen of the can-can. Uh-huh. Um, she has another nickname that I'm gonna get, not going to give away yet. But oh, boy. she historically is one of France's most famous can-can dancers. Oh. I was very shocked I'd never heard of her name. And even looking at some of the pictures of her, I think I've seen them. Or the posters. Really? And I've, like, never... I just never did the the due diligence. Should I wait to Google? To see? I have lots of pictures oh, okay, to show okay, you. Okay, okay, good. Okay, and to show you guys at home, they'll be on our social media. Yes, correct. So her, Louise's passion for the stage started at a very early age, like I mentioned, but it's around the age of 16 when Louise begins sneaking off 
to the dance halls in smaller neighborhoods of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was noted again that she would borrow the expensive clothes of her mom's customers because she didn't have any of her own. Yeah. And then go off dancing for the night and then Ooh. come back. And I was like, could you imagine if people did that with, like, like my laundry? Yeah, and, like, you drop off your laundry. They're like, let me take this out for a spin. (laughs) I guess then they clean it, but, ugh. Yeah. (laughs) So funny. And it's here that she not only falls in love with performing, because she knew she liked that aspect, but she falls in love with, like, the stage and the audience. Mm -hmm. And so while dancing around... Paris at all these small clubs, Louise quickly becomes very popular because of her personality. She was electric when the spotlight was on her, and she quickly got audiences to love her for both her dancing skills and her, like, charming behavior, which in every article I read was described as audacious. I love it. Like I there's, love that word. <laughs> yeah. So here's just one picture. Okay. Of Louise. Oh, that's a split. Yes. I think she's on a table or a piano, but she's just like full dressed, full on split. She was like a character. Yeah. Um, and during her early career, she's known for really two kind of famous acts that people wanted to see her perform. Uh, The first one is where she would tease the male audience by raising her dress skirt and kind of swirling it all around, revealing a heart embroidered on her knickers. And I just think, like, the idea of that is honestly so endearing and, like, hilarious. Like... I don't know. It just seems so funny to me. Like, I know why audiences would love that. Because, like, how funny is that? Yeah. And she's dancing around, and then she, like, lifts her dress, and she's got, like, this heart shape on her underwear. Right. I don't know. It's just funny to me. And also probably so scandalous back then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Another act that she was known to do, um, and this is one of her signature moves, was the high kick. It was when she would high kick, she would often flip a man's hat off with her pointed toe. Like, Oh my god, I love that so much. Like, that was like her thing. But she is often seen doing a high kick. Here's another picture of her. Damn, she is flexible. Very flexible. Um, and this picture is all over the internet. It's one that is seen a lot. But yeah. Um, so these are her two very like famous acts when she's younger. Mm-hmm. And it's here that she kind of gets to know like the artsy crew of the Montmartre neighborhood of France and she becomes, you know, um quite popular with lots of artists. She's known at this time she's quite young to do lots of like nude modeling too, mm-hmm. which was I don't know if it was scandalous for France at the time, but like there are pictures of her like topless modeling and like she she was just like in the scene yeah at the moment and she loved it but this isn't where she becomes infamous her infamy is not when she's younger it's more when she's a, a little bit older okay. and she joins the troupe at moulin rouge so 
I can't hear Moulin Rouge without thinking of the movie. Yeah. I love the movie so much. Well, I actually didn't do this research, and I probably should have. I wonder if any of the characters in Moulin Rouge are based on her. I bet they are. Oh. Because she is one of the most famous Moulin Rouge dancers or performers. I didn't even think about that until just now. Oh, man. We're going to have to look into it. I bet she is. We'll have to give an update, like, in our intro or something next week. Yeah. But um, it's here at uh, Moulin Rouge where she earns her most famous nickname, La Goulet, which literally in French translates to the glutton. Okay. Yes. And I'm going to tell you how she earns that nickname after I tell you a little bit about Moulin Rouge. Okay. So according to the people source, Moulin Rouge or the Red Mill, mm-hmm. as it translates to, because of its red windmill shape, opened in the year 1889, uh, and it is best known as the birthplace of the modern form of the can-can. Right. And the aim when Moulin Rouge was opened was to allow the very rich, elite society of you know, downtown Paris Mm -hmm. to kind of come and quote unquote slum it (laughs) in the, the fashionable district of Montmartre. Okay. Cause that was like the artist district. Right. And so I have been to Paris, but I did not go to Moulin Rouge. I have been to the Moulin Rouge. I'm actually like scanning real quick to see if I took pictures there. Oh, but, um, Apparently, the original Moulin Rouge had a very extravagant setting. It's often talked about their outdoor garden, mm-hmm. um, which was adorned with this ginormous elephant made of paper mache and like just a, a stage where everyone performed. And it said that it was inviting for people from all walks of life. So, workers. Um, residents of the neighborhood, artists, middle class, businessmen, elegant society from Paris, foreigners who were visiting, everyone kind of came to the Moulin Rouge and rubbed shoulders. Yeah. And they they came for the good time, the drinks, the mm-hmm. the dancing, the it was just a party. Yeah. Every night was a party at the Moulin Rouge. And so it's here that Louise makes a name for herself and she is quite possibly some people credit her as creating the can can Mm -hmm. others credit her as being like the queen of the can can yeah Uh, but this is what she did and based on that high kick photo I'm not surprised that (laughs) what she became known for and you know the dance is quite seductive uh you know and it leads to I mean, it it travels across Europe. It spreads to cabarets mm-hmm. across Europe and becomes worldwide famous. Mm-hmm. But it's said to originally, like, started at the Moulin Rouge. Right. Okay. So, Louise is a headliner at the Moulin Rouge, and she has so many nicknames. They call her the Toast of Paris, the Queen of Montmartre, the Queen of the Can-Can, but La Gouli, like, on her Wikipedia page... It's she's not Louise Weber, she's La Gouli. Okay. That is her most famous nickname. Right. Um, she is the highest paid entertainer of her day while at Moulin Rouge. And she earns this nickname because she is a glutton. Like she fed on the energy 
of the crowd okay. with these these fun things like the heart shaped underwear. I was gonna say, did she keep that? While oh she yeah, can Oh yeah, because that's part of the point of the can can, right? Is like rash a little, right? <laughs> um, and but the real reason she got the nickname is because she would grab any glass within her reach and chug it. There was. Damn girl. <laughs> no drink was safe when La Gouli was on stage. And that really became like her act. That's how she became known as the glutton. Yeah. Because as she was performing, she would just steal people's drinks and chug them. Okay. That would not fly in today's COVID world. No. <laughs> um, I don't think it would just fly, period. Yeah. COVID. Like the performer just stealing your drink and chugging it. I know, and you're like, I paid for that. <laughs> yeah, but it became like her signature move, and it was almost like people wanted her to take their drink. So the act, it's this act that was a crowd pleaser, and it's one of the things that would catch the eye of Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. That sounds right to me. Great. <laughs> um, now, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec is an artist in France at the time, and he is also in his own right quite famous and world-renowned today. Um, But at this time, he would be holed up at the Moulin Rouge at a dark table, and it's here in Louise where he finds not only his muse, but a drinking partner and a lifelong friend. They form a very close bond, and she is immortalized in his portraits and posters all over the world today. Uh, she was one of his biggest muses in the late or the early 1890s. Both of them became very, very, very famous for very, very, very short periods of time okay. from about like 1890 to like 1905. Mm-hmm. And then not a whole lot happened. Right. But while they were in the height of their careers, they were inseparable. And so Moulin Rouge, the Moulin Rouge actually commissioned uh, Henri to create the posters that they would use for advertising. So, like, this is the poster I'm talking about. I already know what it is. Like, I see it from the side, and I've definitely seen that before. So this is a 100%. poster that Henri created. This is La Goulie. Yeah. Um, and, or Louise. And, like, this is recreated in kitchens around the world. Yeah, you know, like, I've seen that a million times. It's a very famous French vintage poster, but it was created for the Moulin Rouge, and it's this this combo of them. And I, I mean, I would have never like pictured that in my head because I wouldn't, I don't, I didn't know what that meant. You know, right, right. But but yeah, it's super famous. Again, we'll post it on on social media. So Toulouse-Lautrec is a French painter, printmaker, droughtsman, caricaturist, and illustrator. He has quite an interesting history. I didn't want to go into all of it, but... Because he's a dude. Well, yeah. <laughs> but he also, like, the fact that they were such good friends was, like, quite endearing to me because he had some kind of bone condition mm-hmm. where he, like, broke his legs when he was younger and his bones never grew so he had a full male sized torso but children's sized legs he's only five foot tall oh wow 
and he was like often made fun of Aww. and like he was a recluse and that's how we found art and then he went on to be quite famous yeah um so i just kind of loved i just want to give that little bit of history for him because he is a very like well-known artist in his own right yeah um he actually does something really interesting yeah so there's more to it um and this is and again we'll post this picture on social media as well this is his most famous portrait of louise okay i think Uh, i have seen that too and this is titled la goulie at the moulin rouge okay it is currently located at moma here in new york that's probably why i think i've seen it before they said I did some research. It's not currently on display, but yeah. they do own the portrait. But it's, like, not her dancing. It's just her kind of entering the club in her a little... Super low cut. Super low cut. Super V. Like, everyone thinks J-Lo did that super V first. But yeah. look at this. Clearly, she wasn't the first. Louise was rocking it. But, yeah, so this is one of his most famous portraits of Louise. And just in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he loved this art so much. The year he completed it, he put it on exhibit four different times throughout Paris. Oh, wow. Because he just thought it was a beautiful portrait of her mm-hmm. and was very proud of it. However, you know, you can't stay as the headliner at Moulin Rouge forever. Yeah. Um, after achieving lots of fame and fortune, Louise decides to part with the company and strike out on her own. So she invests a lot of her money into a show that she planned to kind of travel around the country. It was kind of, in some sources, it was a a fair. In others, it was circusy. But, like, she was the dancing aspect of it. Mm -hmm. While her fans had lined up to buy tickets to see her at the Moulin Rouge, they didn't do so with this new traveling business venture. And it fails. Um, However, in 1900, she starts a new adventure. She gets married. A new adventure? Yeah. And her marriage, um, they don't even name him anywhere, but he was a magician. So again, they start like a traveling act. Um, Her dancing, there are animals involved. He's a magician. She's like a, a dancing beast tamer. I It all sounded very confusing. Okay. Um, there were some incidents with animals attacking both her and her husband. Oh, damn. And this adventure also failed. So following the closure of this second show, Louise decides to kind of disappear from the public eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's assumed that this is where her alcoholism kind of goes into a spiral. I mentioned, you know, she had the nickname, the glutton for chugging full glasses of alcohol mm-hmm. and kind of making your career on that. You grow quite a tolerance, but it spirals into a form of alcoholism. And after the failure of her second traveling act, it really partners with what many believe is a form of depression. So she begins to drink heavily and she ends up spending every piece of her fortune that she had made while dancing um, and kind of becoming a recluse and falling out of the public eye for many, many years. Oh, I know. It's very sad. It is really sad. Um, however, in the year 1928, she is out of options. There's no mention of her husband. I'm not sure if they're divorced or he passes away. 
But <clears throat> Luis is alone. She is an alcoholic. She has no money. Mm-hmm. And she actually returns to the Moulin Rouge and wants to perform once again as La Goulie. But they turn her down. Oh. They do tell her she's welcome to be a vendor outside, however. So How old is she at this point? So she was born in, what did I say, 56? This is 1928. She's, I mean, decent age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and she, so she, she starts vending out front of the Moulin Rouge, uh-huh. selling peanuts, cigarettes, and matches on the corner. Um, many people walk right by her. They don't recognize her as, you know, the former queen of Montmartre. And, you know, age and alcoholism has changed her appearance quite drastically. I have a picture of what she looked like around this time. Oh my god, she looks completely different. Yeah. Wow. But it's known that when she did make a couple dollars, she would buy alcohol. And when she got drunk, they'd say she'd often stand on the street corner and shout, I'm La Goulie, can't you see it? I was the greatest star to ever perform here. Which is just so so sad. sad. I know, I know. 1929, Louise does die at the age of 62. And newspapers around the world announced her death. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was originally buried in the cemetery um, in Pantine, which is a Paris suburb. But later, her remains were transferred to the Cemetery de Montmartre to be Mm -hmm. closer to the Moulin Rouge and where she was most infamous. And so, while she does have kind of a sad ending, I do think it is great that she did live such, like, this exciting lifestyle and Mm -hmm. had this, you know, really important part in, like, the history of the Can-Can and... Yeah. Like, just... Her nickname being the glutton because she could chug alcohol. Yeah. It's just so funny to me. Um, I know. I like, uh, I mean, obviously we can't because we don't have a time machine and they weren't recording film back then. But, like, imagine seeing one of her performances. They were probably, like, so electric. And like, I know. They, I didn't watch the video. Apparently, like, the only known video of her is, like, at the end of her life when yeah. she's kind of drunk and shouting on street corners and I like yeah. didn't want to watch that part. No. I didn't show you and I I guess we can post it. There is a picture of her from when she was modeling nude and like she was just like so confident. And, yeah. Like, she was so look at her face. She's like, yeah, look at me. What? Yeah. Like she's like so confident. And, like I just these high kick pictures. We're gonna yeah. put all these on our social media so make sure you check them out. But um, she just lived such an interesting life. Even if it was, like, a short-lived career, it was, mm-hmm. like, super important. And she is one of the most well-known dancers yeah. from... And both of those pieces of art, the poster and the um, portrait of her, I I mean, when you guys see them, uh, you know, when you go to our, our Instagram page, you will immediately recognize them, too. Yeah. So that's the story of Louise Weber. So my resources today, I had two main articles in addition to the people source, but I used, again, this website I mentioned in a previous uh, episode, uh, MessyNessyChic.com. Your and new favorite website? It's my new favorite. <laughs> Honestly, the, the interesting thing she finds there, 
I mean, and it's not just women. Like, the history she writes about is so amazing. But she wrote an article called Meet the Fallen Queen of the Moulin Rouge, Mm -hmm. all about Louise. And then I also have an article, uh, the article from myfrenchlife.org called Louise Weber, um, a.k.a. La Gouli, My Most Inspiring French Woman. So... Both of those articles had lots of resources. And then, like, a couple things here and there. Like, MoMA website I used for Henri's information and things like that. But, um, yeah. Also, I feel like we should clarify for anyone who's, like, joining this podcast and, like, this episode randomly, the people source does mean Wikipedia. (laughs) Yes. I feel like sometimes we just say it and we just assume people know what we're going to talk about. And I, it just pops into my head. I was like, a random person might not know that we have dubbed Wikipedia. Well, the people source. That's what it is. <laughs> You're probably not surprised to hear this because it is a season about women, but the brand of Veuve Clicquot, uh, and really kind of the way the champagne industry works as we know it, was created by a badass lady who became one of the world's first international businesswomen. In fact, Veuve in French means widow. So, mm. yeah, so Veuve Clicquot means widow Clicquot. Uh, and I am going to tell you her story. So, Madame Clicquot was born Barb Nicole Ponsardion uh, on December 16th of 1777. Um, this one's... I listened to how to pronounce this town name. I can't even tell you how many times. And I kept being like, what? So it's spelled R-E-I-M-S. Rem? It's Rance. It kind of sounded like France. Okay. Rance, I think. France. Um, And the city is 90 miles east of Paris. And it's actually apparently a very big champagne area. Um... So in the Champagne region of France? In the Champagne region of France, correct. Um, so Barb Nicole is described as a tiny woman. Uh, she was no taller than four and a half feet, and she had light-colored hair and gray eyes, just so you can have a visual image of her. Four and a half feet. Very little, powerful woman. Wow. <laughs> her father was an affluent textile industrialist and tycoon, Ponce Jean Nicolas Philippe Posardion. Uh, I I like keep think, looking at the name because I listened to how to pronounce Ponsardion and it looks like it's Ponsardine and the mm-hmm. guy kept being like, do not say sardine. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so mm-hmm. he owned a large family estate and it was called Hotel Ponsardion uh, and it was obviously not a hotel. It's, I don't. I don't know why it was called that. Honestly, I couldn't find why. <laughs> but you couldn't rent a room. No, no. But it's but it's hotel. Um, so during the French Revolution, um, Barb Nichols' father joined up with Jacobins uh, against the monarchy, and the Jacobins like their thing was that they rebelled against the monarchy and wealth in general. So, obviously, as, like, a large family estate owner, her family was wealthy. And so it was, like, a really smart political move for her father to join up with this cause. 
um, and they like lived a relatively reserved life and really didn't show their wealth and that basically saved them like they came out of the revolution basically unscathed okay. and it was like all because he was like I'm gonna join with this group so it was very smart on his part and even though they lived like this reserved life and and uh she was actually pulled out of school at one point because of it she did still receive a really good education um and did still secure a well-connected marriage so as long as she got a well-connected as marriage long as she was married well <laughs> so when she was 21 years old um in 1798 bob nicole married francois clicot uh, he was the son of Philip Clico, who was like the head of another wealthy textile family. Um, so it actually turned out that they lived next door to each other and were competitors because they were both big in the textile industry. Um, and of course, the marriage was like an attempt to, they were like, we're going to bring the businesses together and have one massive textile industry they're just gonna dominate the they're textiles. gonna they're gonna dominate um and i think it's important to note that francois was philippe's only son um so of course he probably expected him to him take, to take it over business however philippe also owned a small wine business uh it was a very minor portion of the family's business and francois was like i'm more interested in wine uh so he and Barb Nicole decided to take over the wine business and not the textile business. Mm. Um, it worked out for them in the end. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, at the time, the Champagne region of France was famous more for its still white wine uh, as opposed to now where it's known for its like sparkly bubbly. Philippe at the time again had the small wine business and what he would do was he would buy the wine uh from winemakers and then he would export it on an as-needed basis or to like round out an order so someone would be ordering his textiles and he was like here's some wine you know bump it up to a full 200 or you know whatever right. um and he had no intention of expanding the business it was just this like very base business um and so when Francois saw an opportunity, he kind of like didn't really support the idea. He didn't think it would be profitable. He like disapproved of it. Um, again, I'm sure he wanted his son to take over the textile business, not this tiny little wine thing. But the couple using the dowry that they had began to scout locations to grow their wine and champagne business. And Francois began to learn everything he could about the wine trade. Um, and it also helped that Mad the now Madame Clicquot was actually had some wine business in her background. Her grandmother had been part of a winemaking operation in the past. So like it was kind of like something that she was a little familiar with. Um, of course, as the business grew because of the time period, Francois was the one that was the face of the company and who had a little bit more access uh, to all like to learn everything. But Madame, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but Madame Clicquot was in the background, learning everything that she could. Francois shared all he learned about champagne creation and distribution with his wife. Uh, she worked alongside him in the vineyards and just absorbed everything that she could. Again, they really were kind of like true partners in this. 
Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. Um, but sadly, <laughs> their attempts at the wine and, or the champagne business stalled and it was on the brink of collapse. Oh, no. Um, and I thought this was where she was going to murder him. In true Vanessa fashion, I expected there to be a murder. No. <laughs> um, um, around this time that the wine business was collapsing, tragedy struck, and uh, Francois did die. Um, it is recorded that he died of typhoid fever um, only six years into their marriage. Typhoid fever, you say? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I will note that there were a lot of rumors that he did not die of typhoid, but died of, by suicide. Um People were saying that he had died by suicide because he was in distress over the fact that his business had failed and like there, it seemed like they were in this hole and couldn't climb out. But it's officially recorded as being typhoid. Um, of course, this shouldn't be much of a surprise to you because, of course, the as I said, Vuv Clico means Widow Clico. Um, so the story's not over. Madame Clico was now left to provide for herself and for her young daughter who she had with Francois Clementine and oh my god I love that name it has an accent on it so I feel like I'm saying it it's not supposed to just be Clementine but that's how I'm gonna say it okay it's cute I'd call her Clemmy Clemmy <laughs> little Clemmy well, maybe not it doesn't sound right <laughs> I take it all back it is a cute name, though. But it's cuter as Clementine. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, okay. So, of course, never having been a fan of the business, um, and of course devastated by the death of his only son, Philippe announced plans to shut down the wine business by the end of 1805, the year that uh, Francois died. Um, he didn't want to run it and obviously he didn't have any other sons to take over so he was like, well, it's done. Um, but in a badass and bold move, especially for those times, Madame Clicquot didn't let this untimely death stop her from realizing her Francois's dream. So at the age of 27, she approached her father-in-law with a proposal to take over the business herself. So a Smithsonian article I read quoted uh, an author named Tilar Mazeo, uh, who wrote The Widow Clicquot, a book um, about her life. And he said, Bob Nicole goes to her father-in-law and says, I'd like to risk my inheritance. I'd like you to invest the equivalent of an extra million dollars to me running this wine business. And he says, yes. It's surprising that he would let a woman who had no business training take this on. And what it speaks to is that Philippe Clicquot was no fool. He understood how very keenly intelligent his daughter-in-law was. Philippe did insist, however, that she go through an apprenticeship. So she did that. She worked with a well-known winemaker named Alexandre Fourneau uh, for four years. However, at the end of the four years, doesn't seem like the partnership or apprenticeship really helped. Um, the business was still failing. So Madame Clicquot had to go back to her father-in-law for another investment, which he surprisingly provided. Mm. And this time she was doing it on her own. Yeah. Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I do not need a man. Exactly. 
So basically, Madame Clicquot took over the management of everything from international strategy to wine production and also began to develop innovations in marketing and technology. So first off, Madame Clicquot removed the middleman from the sales process. She was the first woman to run a champagne house built on direct sales where she supplied the product directly to the customer. And this increased her earnings. Um, she was willing to take risk and she decided to expand her business outside of France. Now, before I get to her expanding her business, at the time, champagne was not really the beverage that we know right now. Um, it was cloudy and it was very sweet. Um, an article I read on Wine Folly noted that champagne at the time had 200 grams of residual sugar. Um, however, she knew that Russians loved the sweet champagne. In fact, a lot of them even preferred an even sweeter variation at closer to 300 grams of sugar. So oh, yeah. that's like just grape juice at that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so she knew that at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, that the Russians would be looking for a champagne source um, because they were a very early enthusiast of the product. However, there were a lot of naval blockades at the time and it prevented commercial shipping, shipping and it prevented winemakers from getting champagne to Russia. So, in a move akin to the bootleggers of prohibition in America, Madame Clicquot smuggled that champagne into Amsterdam, waited for peace to be declared, and as soon as it was, her supply made it to Russia way faster from Amsterdam than it did from champagne. Right. So she beat like every competitor by several weeks. Wow. Badass move. Um, and amazingly, Tsar Alexander I announced that it was the only kind of champagne he would drink. So it was like influencer marketing in the olden days. Like yeah. you have someone big ha taste your stuff and they love it and they promote it. So of course, like this makes her name become very well known and suddenly everyone wants her champagne because they're like Czar. Yeah, yeah, Alexander drinks it. I need to drink it. Um <laughs> so <laughs> she began to think that like she wouldn't even be able to fill the orders. Um she had taken this dying business and made it so successful that the demand was like exceeding the supply that she felt she had. Um and so she had to come up with a solution. So as I mentioned right before I got to Russia, uh, champagne back then was often cloudy. Uh, and this was due to a sludgy yeast floating around in the bottle. Words <laughs> I never want to hear together. Like, I know when I read it, I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm oh. not going to lie. The bottom of my class has like all the pearl dust. And I just imagine it to be cloudy like this. Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is like edible glitter not not sludgy, sludgy yeast, yeast. <laughs> gross so terrible um and that developed from the second fermentation process um basically what happened is after like the first fermentation process champagne was created by adding sugar and live yeast to the bottles of white wine uh being that being the second fermentation so a little science, you know, as Laura said, we're not science people, mm -hmm. but basically the yeast digests the sugar and the byproducts created are alcohol and carbon dioxide. 
and that's what gives the wine its bubbles so i understand <laughs> in order to remove this like gross ass sludgy yeast winemakers used expensive drugs clarifying agents and elaborate processes the most common process was they would basically pour the finished product from one bottle to another over and over again and it was actually a really lengthy process like it was done over a very long period of time um and not only that but it also damaged the wine by constantly agitating the bubbles i was gonna say i feel like yeah. that would ruin the carbonation and it also caused a lot of the champagne to be lost during the process because people would just spill it when they were pouring right. from bottle to bottle so what did she create vanessa I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so Madame Clicquot came up with a very simple and efficient way to prevent that, to A, prevent the nasty yeast, and B, do it way faster. So basically, it was just storing the bottles upside down at an angle and twisting them to collect the sediment in the neck. She took her kitchen table, she cut a bunch of holes in it, put it at an angle, stuck the bottles in at an angle upside down, and just twisted them a little bit and and it all like all, it would all come into the neck mm -hmm. of the bottle I'm, i can picture it yep so this basically became known as the rumage system i can't remember if that's how you say it uh or table de rumage which basically means riddling table in english because the tables riddled with holes get it oh. <laughs> um and the process like i said it was it, it was inexpensive all you needed was like a wood board with holes in it um, it was faster, it clarified the wine, and it also improved the quality. So, at first she kept this technique very secret, um, and it showed how loyal her employees were, because she had a pretty large group of employees that, like, did not reveal this to anybody, no matter how hard they tried. Um, it drove her competitors crazy because it gave her a huge advantage. She was, like, able to get things out way faster than they could. Um, it would take decades for others to finally learn what this secret was. And once it was figured out, everyone used it. And it is still a fundamental part of champagne production to this day. Like, everyone still uses it. Wow. So this is really how it works. So again, the wine bottles are rested at an angle, so the yeast collects in the neck of the, of the bottle. The yeast expels as the bottle is opened with pressure inside. And then a small amount of sugar and grape is added back to refill the bottle because obviously it would leave room um and it results in like a clear wine so this is what this is what it looks like that's what they do that's exactly what i was picturing literally like a wooden board with just bottles upside down sticking out of it that is exactly what i was picturing. yeah so simple but very efficient and not only did this process remove the cloudiness and make things faster um, but it also made smaller bubbles and a sharper tasting wine as opposed to that super sweet wine that has existed before. So it kind of changed the taste of the champagne and became more of what we now know as champagne, which I don't think of as super sweet. No, neither. I think of Prosecco as sweet. Yes. So besides that great invention that like everyone uses to this day, uh, she had a couple of other pretty noteworthy innovations. Um, Madame Clicquot was also the first person to bottle, or the first recorded person, to bottle vintage champagne uh, in 1810. So what that means, like when, a, when it's a vintage, it means that all the grapes were harvested in the same year. Because typically champagne is a blend of different wines and grapes, 
uh, that are harv harvested in different years. Okay. So once it's like all the grapes are harvested within one year, it's a vintage. Which I didn't know. I just thought that meant old wine. Yeah. <laughs> I've, <It's> heard, vintage. <laughs> I've heard that when I was in Porto and they were talking about the creation of port wine. They have like, it might even be the same term, mm -hmm. but I know that there is like something to the year that the grapes are harvested and, and created yeah. into wine. Yeah. But her vintage champagne would, wouldn't take off right in 1810. It would be the next year. Um, so it was during the year that the Great Comet appeared uh, in the sky. Obviously, it's a comet. <laughs> um, and she named her 1811 vintage after the Great Comet. It was called the Year of the Comet. And she also added a star to the cork, which is just such a cute touch. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love a fancy detail? <laughs> and that champagne is actually the one that Tsar Alexander I was like, crazy about and said was the only one he would drink was that year of the comet 1811 champagne okay also in 1818 madame Clicquot made the first rosé champagne what yeah uh she combined her red pinot with champagne uh previously rosé like the idea of it had been used by adding elderberries instead of using like a red wine or red grapes which is what she did interesting yeah so all of these innovations would obviously gain her notoriety um and she got the nickname grand dame of champagne among her peers because she was she was um i also wanted to note that madame Clicquot never remarried um, and a lot of people think that the reason that she never remarried was, was because then a man could take over her business and like, fuck that. She right. had like, but like she had tried to work with men before it never worked until she took over. Yeah. Um, by the time Madame Clicquot died in 1866, Veuve Clicquot was annually exporting 750,000 bottles of champagne all over the world, including to the U.S., a lot uh, of champagne. A lot of champagne, especially for 1866, I feel like. And then through her rumage technique, which made the champagne process faster and cheaper, she helped to make champagne more accessible to not just the upper class, but also to the middle class, which greatly expanded her clientele. And today, Veuve Clicquot is said to produce 1.5 million cases of wine each year. Um... And as I noted at the top, it is the second most popular brand of champagne in the world. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of quotes to close us out. Um, as quoted from the Smithsonian Magazine article that I read, the invention of riddling allows the mass production of an artisanal and luxury product, just not at the tiny quantities that we they were dealing with before. Barb Nicole begins exporting wine around the world in large quantities and is known as one of the great businesswomen of her century. Um, and then from Vav Clicquot's own website, they wrote, in an era when women were excluded from the business world, she dared to assume the head of the company, a role she undertook with passion and determination. Madame Clicquot's character might be summarized with two words, audacious and intelligent. I agree. Those are great words to describe her. <laughs> they they are. They're great words in general. I, I wish people would describe me that way. <laughs> I describe you. I'm just going to start saying, this is Vanessa, my audacious friend. 
Um, so my sources for the story. <laughs> I just pictured another merch idea. It's a t-shirt that says I'm audacious and intelligent. <laughs> I love it. I know. Let us know if you think you would buy that. <laughs> um, okay, so... My sources for the story were an article from Wine Folly called Vove Clicquot and Champagne's Leading Lady, Barb Nicole, by Julia Riddle. Uh, and that one was super helpful. And then also The Widow, Widow Who Created the Champagne Industry by Natasha Gelig, or Gelig, Gelling. Um, and that was from SmithsonianMag.com. And then lastly, an article called 10 Sparkling Facts About Madame Clicquot and the Queen of the Champagne Dynasty by Kristen Richard, and that was at mentalfloss.com. And that is the story of Vove Clicquot. I love Vove. (laughs) (laughs) Laura and I hope you enjoyed this final re-release before season five launches on May 31st. If you wanna see pictures from the episode or find out more information on season five, check out our Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist and email us with any story ideas at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Cheers.